Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online and you who are meeting in the north in Port Perry this morning. Want to say Merry Christmas to you as part of our family. Down at this site, Andrew was just making the statement, we're not sure where we got that snow. Well, let me tell you, we filmed in Northern California to get that snow, actually. And so we had to go all the way to California to get that with some of our friends out there. There's nothing here, but California's got snow. Okay, great. I'd like to welcome you to this service, and I'd like to welcome you to the last part in our first part of this series called Spirit Move out of the book of Acts. As you know, as we all know, it is Christmas time. We are inundated by the season. And I was reflecting on this last passage I'm going to speak on today and thinking about the Christmas event. You know, this is, in my opinion, the best time of year. This is the time where we gather together. This is the time where uh, there's joy, supposedly. There's giving. There's, there's celebration. There's even pauses in our culture to think on good and beautiful things. And this is supposed to be the time where families and close friends gather together to share a good meal with each other, to give gifts to each other, and to celebrate. And I think many of us would say that despite the ups and downs, Christmas is a beautiful and a wonderful time, especially with family. But we also know, too, in our culture, we don't spend a lot of time with our families because we're on the move. And if you actually come back together as a family for an extended period of time, you suddenly realize sometimes why you don't spend so much time with your family, um, right? I mean, it's interesting. The more you hang out with people in proximity over a long period of time, you actually, the more you know who they are, and they're, they're good and they're bad. And it's interesting, you know, you don't need a PhD in psychology. You just, you know this instinctually, though Christmas is a beautiful time and a wonderful time and an exciting time, much of the time, a lot of family drama and pain happens during the Christmas season because we're not in proximity, we're within proximity of each other and or some families aren't good at actually dealing with past stuff. And so it sits there and then it always comes up at the inappropriate time and Christmas can be sort of a difficult season. Now, here's why I want to bring this up. Because the passage we're going to talk about today is actually a replication of that experience where you have a family gathering, which is the church, and everything is fantastic, and then there's some unresolved stuff in the family that has never been talked about, and when everyone hangs out with each other for an extended period of time, during the best season in the church so far, everything gets really bad really quick. Now, I want you to hold this close to your heart because what we're going to talk about today matters for C4 actually in this season. And I don't mean this Christmas season, I mean the season that we're in. So I just want to start at the beginning. If you've been part of C4 for the last little while, we've been working through the book of Acts, and I want to do a quick recap of what we've seen God do so far through the book of Acts. Now, we're going to end up at Acts 6 today, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 6. It's going to be there. If you've got a virtual Bible, you can open that up. But I just want to do a recap to see all the profoundly good things that have happened. I want to set up the amazing moment that actually could be threatened uh, as we go through. So God has done extraordinary things. The first thing that happened is Jesus physically rose from the dead. 
That's not a bad beginning to the conversation, right? He physically rises from the dead. He spends 40 days with his friends. He shows them that he's alive. And then he says to his mom, some of his brothers, and also a group of people, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait and I want you to pray because I'm going to give you a gift. And they're like, well, what gift are you going to give me? He says, I am going to let you walk in and under the same power that I did for three and a half years in my ministry. I'm going to give you my spirit and he's not just going to be above you. He's going to live in you. I remember what he said in Acts 1.8, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So spirit move, that's where we began. And so what happened? Remember the story? They gathered together. They're now one family. They prayed together. They wondered. And then the spirit moved. Jesus answered their prayer. At that moment, the church, as we know, it was birthed and the Holy Spirit came on men and women and bound them together. And they kept declaring that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, was Savior and Lord. This fire from heaven, like tongues of fire, came upon all of them. And in that moment, if you remember the story, they all started speaking in languages they did not know. And they started declaring the praises of God and witnessing about Jesus. It says in Acts 2.4, all of them, not some, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, staying in Jerusalem at that moment were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd started to gather and they were bewildered because each one of them started hearing their own language being spoken. Now, we walk through the passage and if you remember, 15 geographical areas are mentioned in the text. And what's even more epic and amazing is if you actually do your geography homework, every single part of the Roman Empire is represented in that moment. From the farthest eastern border to the farthest western border, from the desert to the islands, there are Jews from the whole known known Roman world at that moment gathering to experience God at the temple, and God shows up on a side street. So God answers their cry, spirit move, gives them the ability all at once to speak in languages, and begins to bring the world back to God through Jesus. And like I preached, notice what happens. God doesn't use the trade language of the day, which they all would have known in part, Greek, or he doesn't use the faith language of the Jews, the Hebrew language or Aramaic. He uses what? Each person's own language. And why is that powerful? Because that tells us that the God of the universe, who's our creator, actually wants to know me personally. He wants to speak my language. He wants to, he wants to invade my culture. It's this statement, God loves me and wants to speak to me in the best way that I translate life, the best way I feel, and the best way I comprehend and understand. So all this breaks out. This is taking place. 150 people are speaking in tongues. Thousands of pilgrims, Orthodox Jews for a festival, gather around. And then in the middle of that, Peter, a grade two educated Galilean fisherman who had denied Jesus only weeks earlier, stands up and he preaches the very first Christian sermon in history. And as he's preaching, the crowd is growing more and more. They're bewildered. They're shocked. This is quite striking. And this is how he ended his message. Remember in Acts 2.38, he said, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit also. And the promise isn't just for you who are gathering here today. It's also for your kids, and it's also for anyone who's far off, meaning not just Jews, but actually the whole world, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then it said, and those who accepted his message were baptized, so they believed first, and then evidenced it with baptism next. And it says that 3,000 were added to their number within hours that day. So within moments of God showing up in a new way and the church being born, the church within hours grew from 150 people to 3,000 people. And remember, most of these people are from the whole Roman world and don't even know each other. And now they're pushed into one family. And we know this wasn't emotional. We know this wasn't a flash-in-the-pan moment because what got replicated and reproduced out of this moment is nothing but spectacular and unnatural. Remember, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, being with each other, and to communion, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers, all the believers, 3,000 plus were together. They held everything in common. They started selling property, and they gave possessions to any person who had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They were eating together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God, and they enjoyed the favor of not some of the people, but all the people in Jerusalem. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so you've got 150 to 3,000, and then every single day, more and more people are going, I'm going to believe Jesus is the Messiah. I think Jesus is actually risen from the dead. I'm joining this too. Devoted teaching, fellowship, prayer, communion, miracles, large and small gathering, sacrifice, a community transformed, and God kept it growing daily. It would be like us here at C4 or, or, or up in our north site, and every single day, one, three, five, ten, twenty people walk through the doors and say, we've met Jesus too, we're in, what do we do next? Now, by the time we got to Acts 4 in this series, it says the many more kept believing and the number of men who believed grew to 5,000. And so we found out that within weeks after the first and second event, the church is somewhere now between 10 and 15,000 people and it keeps expanding at an exponential rate. This is an amazing, shocking, supernatural experience. Now, in the middle of this good and great and positive and beautiful and God-ordained thing, trouble happens. Hostility grows against the move of God. And you remember what happened? Peter and John are dragged in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And since Peter and John are both good Orthodox Jews, they are taken in front of their own leaders and they are threatened... And they are told that if you keep healing in the name of Jesus and preaching in the name of Jesus, you're going to get jail or worse. Well, they stood back up to the leaders and say, though we respect you, we will not obey you. We have to obey God. And they left that moment. They have been threatened by the same body that actually took out and executed Jesus. They gather back with the church, it says, a few hours later. They pray together, they pray about the threats, and it says that the Spirit of God came upon the church again, and the physical place where they were was shaken, and the church just kept growing, and another version of Acts 2 happened again. 
God answered their prayer and he produced a church again that was doing biblical community, that was worshiping passionately, (coughs) serving radically, that was giving joyfully and sacrificially. They were praying expectantly. They were inviting courageously. So joy, generosity, excitement, and obedience. There was not a needy person among them, it said. And it said they had one heart and one mind. They were all on the same page and they loved being around each other. And then last week happened. Dave had to preach that very difficult passage, if you were with us, where the church is exploding and Barnabas was even starting to sell land and money. And then Ananias and Sapphira, both Christians, decide to lie to God, lie to the church. They give the devil a foothold. They get demonized actually in the church. And since the devil could not kill the church movement within months from outside opposition, he decided to divide and conquer from the inside. He seduced two Christians. They got involved with him. It says the Spirit of God showed up so strongly that Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. And we all went like, ooh, last week, right? Now the pattern is repeated again. After the internal threat is removed, let's go to the passage in Acts 5, what happens next? It says that the Spirit of God was poured out once again in the church, in chapter 5, verse 12, and the apostles performed more miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers kept meeting together in Solomon's colonnade. Remember, that's in the temple grounds. So they keep going back to the very grounds where they've actually been threatened by the leaders. And then it says in verse 13, a new introduction, no one else dared join them now, even though they were highly regarded by all the people. Nevertheless, here it is again, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So once again, it says that this group keeps growing, more people keep getting saved. And as a result, it got so wild, people brought sick into the streets, laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as they passed by. Can you imagine this? Crowds gathered now from towns outside of Jerusalem, bringing all their sick and all of those who were demonized, and all of them were healed. So this is amazing and powerful, more salvations, more miracles, more healings. The healing power of Jesus is so strong that when Peter walked by someone, they got healed. Can you imagine that? And now more deliverances, and it's not just in Jerusalem anymore. People are hearing outside of Jerusalem, they start happening and bringing people. So there's a holy fear that struck the church and an unstoppable force that's behind them. And time and time again in the book of Acts, it continually points to numbers. More people, more people, more people. But then what happens? As God's movement kept growing exponentially, the hostility and the opposition started growing with it. More dangerous, more costly. Now, like I've already said, Peter and John had already been dragged in front of their leaders. Well, now it's not just Peter and John. The leaders, the religious leaders and the lawyers of the day say, we've had enough of this. So they don't just drag Peter and John back in front of them. They take all 12. And it says in Acts 5 that they're put in public jail. So now they're sitting in jail for preaching and healing in Jesus' name by their own ethnic leaders And then things get really dangerous later because it says in verse 40 that they call the apostles back in and they had them flogged. Now I want you just to sit with that for a moment because we don't see flogging in our culture. We've seen it in the last two or three years online, especially in countries or areas controlled by ISIS. We've been struck and shocked when we've seen men take huge bats and beat people And we're horrified by it. And it says that their own leaders, because they had warned them, you stop preaching in Jesus' name. You stop healing in Jesus. And they said, we will not do it. Now they are flogged by their own religious leaders. 
And then after the flogging, they are ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go again. Now, what happens next is so unnatural. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, what's the word? Everyone say it loud. Rejoicing. Hey, I just got beat up. High five. This is so exciting. Now, this doesn't mean it was fake. They were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They thought that this was a real beautiful moment where they got to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And what do they do after they've been flogged? See, this is striking. Day after day, they went back to the temple courts where the Sanhedrin is, and they met from house to house, and they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, that isn't just sort of like a revolutionary, I'm going to pull my bootstrap. No, no. This is spirit-birthed movement that is so powerful that even your own physical care becomes second because you cannot believe how good the love of Jesus is and you want others to hear it too. So here's words, growth and power and opposition and gifts and rejection and holy reconciliation and, and satanic attack and preaching and healing and holy fear. Nothing else but amazing is taking place. I mean, this is what every church on earth prays would happen to them. And then another in crisis takes place. And the crisis that we're about to read about this morning doesn't happen from the outside. It happens inside. An internal problem springs up that could undo everything that heaven has done. Inside the church, in the middle of a real capital R ongoing revival, racism, tradition, and misplaced congregational expectation now spring up and could fracture and kill the move of God. And I want to say this again, because this is so important. Expectations in the middle of movements are critical, so you don't have a too high expectation or too low. In the middle of this ongoing move of God, things on the ground begin to unravel. Yes, more people, more groups, larger gatherings, more baptisms, more miracles, more healings, more deliverances, more stories, more suffering, more joy, more prayer meetings, more spirit move moments, more spiritual gifts, more of the kingdom of God. What Jesus said in the book of John is happening. And you, if you believe in me as the church, you'll do the same things I've been doing and even greater. Yet in the middle of this moment, the thing that every pastor at three o'clock in the morning prays for, trouble unravels the movement. Acts 6.1, here's this, ready? So in those days, and watch the reference, when the number of disciples was increasing, another statement to growth. By the way, churches that grow are natural. Things that are growing are natural. If you stop growing, you're dying. And so the church is growing literally by numbers, and it says that the Hellenistic Jews among them started complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So everyone's at Christmas dinner and it's all great and all amazing. And then someone, uncle so-and-so, looks across the table and says, mm, right? Now, do you catch this? this is the, I didn't the first time. This is the first time in the scriptures, or in the book of Acts, that is, where the church are called disciples. And so there's a unifying understanding. These are all people in the same family on the same team. But the unity is being strained, and it's actually at the point of breaking. Now, you have two groups that are both under Jesus, and they're at odds with each other. And I spoke on this passage last February, if you remember it. 
Both groups are Jewish, but both groups have accepted that Jesus is the Messiah. You've got Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek, not Hebrew. The Hellenistic uh, Jews uh, went to synagogues that only spoke Greek. And not only that, they used a form of the Old Testament called the LXX. So they even had a Greek Old Testament. Not only is that true, they lived around the Roman world. So Hellenistic Jews lived in modern Spain, modern France, modern Turkey, Rome. This is where they lived. Now, the other group, they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and they went to synagogues that spoke that and used Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testaments. Now, most of the Hellenistic Jews are from the Roman world, and we'll see in a few months, Paul, who is going to come on the scene soon, he's a Hellenistic Jew. But the other group lived in the Jewish homeland. So you've got language barriers already, though you've got one people group. And you've got social tensions, and here's why. The Hebraic Jews thought they were more Jewish than the Hellenistic Jews. And here's what you read all the time back then. They say, well, here's the thing. We actually are more Jewish than you are because we actually live in the Jewish homeland, the actual promised land, and all of you actually live out there with all those pagans. And this was the presupposition. You are infected spiritually by who you're around. So if you get too close to all those pagans, you're Jewish, but actually you're compromised. And the truth is we actually stay within our own communities, and so we're actually more holy than you. So we live in the right place, you live in the wrong place. We hang out with the right people, you hang out with the wrong people. And not only that, we speak God's language, you don't speak God's language. So basically, we're more holy, and we're not as compromised as you. And and so, what you have in the church is suspicion, prejudice, injustice now bleeding out through the church. But there's more. This conversation's happening where? In Jerusalem, on the home turf of the Hebraic Jews. And this is why this crisis happens. What happened 2,000 years ago is that when Hellenistic Jews got older, retirement age or plus, they would come back and live in Jerusalem to prepare to die because they wanted to die in Jerusalem, to be buried in Jerusalem because the resurrection of the dead would happen in Jerusalem. So they would come, but they didn't have the family systems to help them like the Hebraic Jews did. So you've got tension and prejudice and presumption and legalism and mistrust. And here's the critical moment for us to think about. Everyone ready? It existed in these groups before they met Jesus. And here's just a little lesson for us all to think about. Just because you've met Jesus and you now have right relationship with God doesn't mean that all your stuff magically disappears in a moment. Anyone want to say amen to that? Amen. Yeah. Truth. Right? This is critical. So many people say, oh, oh, I've met Jesus. Everything is fine. No, it's not. The next whole part of the journey is called sanctification. Working your stuff out. Now Jesus has given you grace. So you've got prejudice and racism and legalism and tension that's going to divide the church. And they all had it before they even met Jesus. So this has reached a boiling point. The wealthier people are giving money supposedly in Acts 2 and Acts 4, no one had need, but now there's a problem. And then it says that they were complaining. Now, this is like a, oh, moment. Because the word complaining isn't, oh, I'm just sort of, you know. No, no. The word complaining is the word grumbling. It comes right out of the Old Testament when the people of God grumbled against God and Moses in the desert. Like, this is a very dangerous, dangerous moment. In other words, the early church is about to split and fracture along language and ethnic lines, us versus them. Any time in a family, let alone a church, when it's us versus them, what happens? You're done. 
What happened to the unity? What happened to one mind and one heart? What happened to there was no one who had need? Well, it seems to be threatened. And I want to say this again. This is happening during a revival. This is happening in the middle. God's spirit doesn't stop working. He keeps working, but it's right in the middle. Now we're going to see what happens. The leaders have to deal with this. And the leaders have to deal with this, and they choose to deal with this problem actually with spiritual gifts and organization. They understood that in the middle of God's ongoing move, administration, planning, and spiritual gifts are critical to long-term sustainability. So verse 2, ready? It says this. So the 12, oh, let me just stop there. So the guys who just got flogged for loving Jesus have to go back to the family to sort stuff out. If the flogging wasn't enough, we got to go deal with a family problem. So they gather some, no, all the disciples. This is a big congregational meeting, 15,000, right? Big meeting. And then they say these words. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. (laughs) Now, I love this passage. Most of us hear this and go, you arrogant word, 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 I won't say. Prideful. You don't want, hold on, you don't want to serve widows? I'm sorry, you call yourself a Christian leader and you don't love and you don't have mercy? You don't have time for widows? Are you even a Christian? Like, what is this? But see, this is what the leaders understood. They understood something so significant and so important. As a movement grows under God's spirit, you have to adjust. As you grow, you have to give up more and more responsibility and influence to get the movement keeping in in its right direction. As you grow, you must do your ministry out of calling. As you grow, let me preach it for the 4,000th time, you must do the majority of your ministry out of what? Your spiritual gift orientation. And this is why we believe this so strongly in this church. These leaders leaders say it would be wrong. It would be incorrect. It would be a terrible mistake. Jesus would be upset with us if we actually hung out and did this ministry and we stopped preparing and preaching the word of God. Whoa. And again, let's remind ourselves what the Bible is. The Bible is not just a book. The Bible is the living, active Word of God. It's called the Sword of the Spirit. What does 2 Timothy say? The Scriptures are God-breathed, and why are they so useful? Well, they teach us, and they rebuke us, and they correct us, and they train us in the good things of God, righteousness, so that every servant, not just some, every servant will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, let me say it for the third time, because this is the third time it comes up in Acts. When God moves the strongest in a church, when the Holy Spirit is among us in the most shocking of ways, when there are multiple conversions and multiple baptisms and multiple deliverances and multiple visions of Christ, and all this is happening, that is when preaching is paramount and important. We are led from the Word of God as churches. It is the ultimate source for faith, life, and practice. Preaching acts like the rudder of a community that's riding the wave of the Spirit. And they say it would be wrong for us not to serve in our spiritual gifts, the only ongoing guaranteed place of power in heaven that God has asked us to serve from. And this is why gift-based ministry is critical and key. We must do this. We will not do that. And if we were in a modern church, one-third of the congregation would leave, right? 
And then what happens? Well, they say, well, not only do we need to work out of our gifts, not only do we need to teach and preach, here's something else we need to do. We need to think about something that would sustain our movement strategically, and at the same time, we need to find people of profound power, no, character. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, this is the introduction of what we today call deacons, and that's sort of an office in the church. And the very first thing that they look for is not their personal platform, is not how many followers they'd have if they did today on Instagram or Twitter, not what their looks were, not how young or old. They didn't look for someone generationally. What did they look for? They said the most important factor for us as we have this conversation is we need to find seven people that have profound character. Character before title, character before gifts, character because we know that if a person has growing, spirit-given, fruit-of-the-spirit character, they can handle the task we're about to give them. When I preached this passage last February, I quoted Abraham Lincoln. It's such a good quote. Character is like a tree and reputation is like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of, but the tree is the real thing. Paul later would write about deacons this way in 1 Timothy 3.8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. They're to be sincere, not indulging in too much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They're not always wondering if it's true or not. They must first be tested, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and manage his children and household well. Now, if you read the rest of the New Testament, I just want to say that uh, feeding the poor is not the only role deacons play. Actually, it's quite amazing. Deacons go and found churches. They preach. They evangelize. They cast out demons. They break all sorts of ethnic and racial and gender barriers. And we find out in the Bible that deacons are both men and women. But here's the point at this critical family gathering that we see. The apostles stand up and say, we will not do this, though you think we should be doing this, because it's actually what God has asked us to. It's not our spiritual role. We need to find seven others. And oh, by the way, they need to use different gifts than we have. And what we found out last February and beyond is this. There are two critical gifts that emerge, at least for this group of deacons. One is administration, and one, the other, is mercy. And and let me just preach this again, because What we're going to talk about in January, this is going to matter to our community. Never misunderstand the spiritual gift of administration. Over leading this church and being involved in this church for 18 years, I have seen this happen three or four times, and it has threatened the future of our church. See, administration is not a leadership gift. Administration is not a teaching gift. Many that actually have the gift of administration think it's a leadership gift, and it's not. The leadership gift or the ruling gift is about leadership and vision and inspiration. Well, administration or the spiritual gift of guidance is the one who comes and supports that vision. If you have this amazing God-given spiritual gift and you choose not to support what God has given through the gift of leadership, you will be perpetually frustrated among us. See, that's actually not where your calling is. It's, it, it's, it's about the how, not the where. In other translations, like I said, the gift of administration is called the spiritual gift of wise counsel or guidance. It is the best second chair leadership gift needed in the church. Now, the gift of guidance, if you read Paul later, which these deacons have, comes from a nautical term called a helmsman. And helmsman, it's a very helpful thing. They're the person who gets the ship to the destination. One wrote it this way, a helmsman stands between the owner of ship and the crew. 
The owner of the ship makes the basic decisions of, well, what's the purpose of the voyage? And where does the ship need to go? And what are we going to do after we get there? But a helmsman gets it from A to B. And what we see here is those with administration gather beside leaders and free them up to do their job as they organize on the ground. Here's the second amazing gift we see emerging in these deacons. It's the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy, I love this definition, refers to the capacity to feel sympathy for those in need, especially those who are suffering, and to manifest this sympathy in practical, helpful ways with a cheerful spirit so to encourage those and help those in need. So the leaders come along during this family spat, uh, this spat, uh, spat that's threatening the unity of the church, and they say, look, let's empower another group of leaders with growing evidence of character, and let's empower them in their spiritual gifts so we can be empowered in our spiritual gifts so we can all keep going in the right direction, and the movement does not stop, and the Spirit of God is not grieved. And so he says in verse 3, we'll turn this responsibility over to them, We'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this is not saying, by the way, that preaching and prayer is more important or more spiritual. We're not suddenly setting up a spiritual class system to replace the ethnic class system that they're trying to undo. And this is also never saying that leaders never have mercy or don't administrate. But the idea that we have here is gift orientation is critical in the middle of a move of God. Now, they do something else here. They say, not only do we need to keep preaching and teaching, they add something. They say, we also need to spend our time, what? Praying. Why is this important? This is unbelievably important. A leadership that is praying is always in tune with God. What is prayer? Number one, like we say all the time, when you perpetually place yourself in the presence of God through prayer, you will never be the same. There is no way that you can continually come into the holiness and the love of God through Jesus and not be changed. And like I've shared before, leaders are the spiritual lids of their churches. And if they themselves are not spending more time in the presence of Jesus being changed, it lids the church. And so these leaders understood in the middle of persecution, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of deliverances and gifts, and trying to now disciple thousands of people in Baptist, they understood that their responsibility, first and foremost, was to be perpetually changed themselves. And so they continually said, I'm going to go back to prayer. It's a priority. It's in my job description because I know that if I keep praying, I'm going to be transformed. Here's the second reason. They understood that they needed to listen to the Spirit to see what the Spirit was going to do next. This is what Jesus demonstrated. He said in John, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. And now these leaders do the same thing. They go before God and they go, okay, Holy Spirit, what next? What are you asking us to do next? Where do you want us to go? Who do you want us to send out? Who do you want to be the next leader? Is suffering coming? How do you want us? See, they understood that listening was strategic. We say this all the time in this church. Prompting always before planning. Not planning to prompting, prompting to planning. How do you hear the prompts of the Spirit? You put yourself in a place of prayer. You use spiritual disciplines and you listen. So the Spirit of God is made a priority in the leaders by praying. And here's the third thing, and this is so incredible. The church leaders at this moment knew that it was their God-given assignment and right and gift to stand in the gap for a growing church because they knew that the hostility from the kingdom of darkness and the hostility from actually their own leaders and others was going to become so strong that they needed to fight in the heavenlies for that church. It's actually what we see all the way back in the book of Samuel. Samuel, who was the prophet of God, 
stands and says these amazing words thousands of years earlier in 1 Samuel 12, 23. As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. Do you see it? This is exactly what their role is. We are called to intercede and to pray and be transformed because if I don't stand in the gap for my community, I'm sinning against God. And not only that, it is my responsibility and my joy to teach so we go in the right direction. And so the leaders say, this is our role. And so the story continues to unfold as they're trying to work out this trauma and this breakdown. It says that they, the proposal pleased the whole group. That's a miracle in itself, by the way, in a church that that even happened. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timion, Parmesius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, here's what's really amazing about this. They don't pick one Hebraic Jew. They pick all Hellenists. They pick all Hellenists to take this over. And the most shocking thing, if you read closely, is this. It's the last name. Nicholas. Merry Christmas. See, there's a connection. No, no, there's not. Uh, Nicholas. Now, who's Nicholas? Nicholas is from Antioch. Nicholas isn't even a Jew. Hmm. Nicholas was what they call a convert to Judaism. He was, he was a Greek or a Roman. or so, And what, ha- what happened? He believed that the one true God was real, and he had converted to Judaism. And then when he came to Jerusalem at Pentecost, he actually realized that the fulfillment of Judaism was found in Jesus. And so now this guy's gone from pagan to Jewish faith to fulfilled Jewish faith. He's the whole ballgame. Actually, Nicholas, if you're not a Jew here today, is you. It's us. And what's so beautiful about this, within months of the church being formed, we actually see in the leadership already what God's heart is because he's come for the whole world. What does it say in Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. Anyone want to say amen to that? Beautiful. So it says they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God spread. Oh, and here it happens again. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, not only do we have another oh my goodness moment, the church grew again. And notice this, they organized, they dealt with the problem, they used their spiritual gifts and the church kept moving in the right direction. But there's this little addition here that should give you real hope, especially at this Christmas season. Here it is. Large number of priests started becoming followers of Jesus, the Messiah. Why does that matter? Because the priest class is aligned to the Sanhedrin, and the priest class were part of the people that were persecuting the church. And here's what I want to say this morning. When the Spirit of God moves in profound power, those who resist or hate Jesus end up being our brothers and sisters all the time. And so even the greatest opposition is taken over by the Spirit of God. Now, last February I stood here in a different series, way before we got into Acts, and I said these words. C4, in this moment in time, is somewhere between Acts 2 and Acts 6. And what I asked the church back then, and I'm going to ask us again, is this. What lessons are we being taught in the Scripture how to steward what we already have? What do we hear in this scripture to prepare for what's coming? And how do we not lose anything given to us since 2011 as a church? And I want to say this again. They organized, they served, they prayed, they adjusted, they served under the gifts. They did this again and again and again, and so, was me, so, and so, was, so must we. Now, why this is going to matter for us 
is because in the next month and a half, we're going to make some very significant announcements to where we're moving as a church. Not physically, we're staying here to breathe, but, uh, but where we're going. And it's critical. So let me just say these things so we're all on the same page. Number one, things can never stay the same on the ground when the Spirit of God is on the move. I said this in February. Change is fun for some people and hard for most people. People who love change view change like surfing. They see a massive wave coming before them. They're like, this is the most amazing thing ever. I'm going right towards the wave. I'm going to crash through the wave, get on top of the wave. People who don't like change see the wave and say, I'm going to die. I mean, that, that's basically how we separate out, right? Don't you agree? Let's run from the wave. Let's go to high ground. It's a tsunami. But listen... We're in this church that's asking for more what? Waves. We keep praying in our connect groups and across our church, oh God, spirit move. Oh God, we want more people, more multiculturalism, more conversions, more sites. Well, here, if we're praying that, then we have to surf or we'll drown. And what we see in the book of Acts very practically is this is actually how you surf when the waves keep coming in. As more things happen, as more people come, as God moves in more profound ways, as the devil, make no mistake, reacts and tries to take this church down, we as a church must be willing to be adjust, flexible. We must continually be ready for more people to come among us that are not like us. And we must be so flexible that we would change structures and anything else to accommodate the work of God among us. We're called personally to make a call to serve each other. And we have to stop and ask a question all the time. Am I saying us versus them in the church. My ministry versus that ministry. This site versus that site. See, right when that begins to happen, we are in danger of quenching the Spirit and seeing the movement of God at C4 fragmented. Remember what I said last February. There are 18,000 Protestant churches in Canada. 150 of them have 1,000 people on a Sunday morning or more. 150. Now, let me say this emphatically. We reject and we are sickened by the idea that any church would stand up and say a bigger church is a more spiritual church or a bigger church is better church. No, no. But we're just one of those churches that is larger and where prayer is much larger. Not long ago, right, we were at one morning service, then it was two on-site venues, then it was three morning services in two locations, and January 1st, we're announcing where our next site's going to be, and in the middle of January, it looks like, we'll see the date soon, one-third of this site is going to be totally renovated so we can reach hundreds of more kids. And oh, just to encourage you, because here's the latest stats, we're baptizing per year 85 to 90 people, which is amazing, right? We're going to baptize a whole nother, like, you got to understand, we're baptizing more people than the average sized church in Canada a year. Now, not, oh, look at C4. Jesus is doing this, right? Anyone want to say amen, right? That's Jesus. But the point is, if that happens and keeps happening, we got to have this attitude they had on the ground where we will never say in our church, us versus them. Our attendance worship here, right, up 32% in three years. Giving has increased 31% in three years. We've grown as a church 21% in the last 24 months. More people, four generations, more multiculturalism, more life, more healings, more deliverances, more connect groups. And those stats don't even reflect the thousands of personal stories 
sitting across our church, conversion, life change, forgiveness, restoration, serving, faithfulness, support, learning, giving. So all I'm saying is, this is the best passage we've got just before we get into Christmas and just before in January we launch and start talking about the next major things we're going to do because we've got to check ourselves to make sure there's no us versus them so we can move forward. And we also need to say, am I using my spiritual gifts properly? Do I know them? And are we all going in the right direction? See, when I first started looking at the book of Acts, these are the words that came to me. Active, expanding, barrier-breaking, supernatural, life-changing, theology-shaping, suffering, betrayal, hope, question, monumental advance, powerful. And it's one thing to read about a move of God in history. It's another thing to experience a move of God at a retreat for a weekend, for a month. But what does it look like when we're actually living in one for a long period of time? See, we read the Bible so much of the time with rose le- rose-colored lenses where it's, it's just read like a comic book. And we forget that in the middle of signs and wonders and baptisms, all this stuff is still happening. And so what I want to say is this. What's the best Christmas gift you could give this church? Ready? Here it is. Number one, be a thankful person for what God is doing in this church. Say to Jesus again this week, Do a list prayer. I am thankful that, God, you have done this at C4 and list it. Because thankful people don't grumble, right? Give the best gift. Just say, Lord, thank you for the baptisms. Thank you for what happened to my family. You know what it is. You've got it. Thank him. And here's the other thing. If you have found yourself in a season of grumbling, the best Christmas gift you could give our church is your repentance. To say, Lord, I'm really sorry. You know what? I started doing the us versus them thing and I took my eyes off what you're doing among us. I took my eyes of what's happening here. Man, I, I should be so... Lord, would you forgive me? That's the best thing you could do for our church this season. Here's the second thing I want to say. It's not new. It's, not a, it's, just, it's true. We see in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 6, that holistic ministry is the heart of God. And that is why we unashamedly, let me say that word again, unashamedly wrote the vision statement for this church the way we did. That we believe we are called to be a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. We unashamedly believe that we are called to help people in their wholeness, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in Jesus' name. And it's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. But by the way, that is why we're so intense around here about spiritual gifts. Because love gifts demonstrate the love of God in practical ways. And word gifts clarify the nature and purpose of who God is and what he's calling us to do. And power gifts demonstrate his living, active presence among us. And if you do not have all three groups working together and using their gift, the stool that has three legs falls over, becomes unbalanced, and we do not do what we're called to do. So that is why we are unashamedly holistic here. It's why we need to keep praying about it. But also, let me say it again. We need every person in this church to know their gifts and to function their gifts and grow in character because when the love people are on fire, guess what? All sorts of needs are met. The place is warm and friendly and kind and awesome and hospitable and people in crisis are always being taken care of. And when the word people are on fire, watch out. You're going to know who God is, what you're called to do, what you're not called to do. You're going to get right doctrine. You're not going to fall off the deep end theologically 
when the power people, woo, when they start showing up, there's going to be miracles and there's going to be healings and people are going to be set free from demons and people are going to be physically healed. And is one group better than the other? No, they're not because Jesus is a holistic God and that's how he designed the church and we're unashamed that we're this type of church. Amen to that? So this is what we want to be. So know your gifts and use your gifts and find out your gifts and wrestle through the gift thing because we don't want to be a church of programs. We want to be a church that's filled with programs, filled with gifted people doing their thing, how Jesus had called them to be. That's critical. So the first thing again, yeah, double, it's Pentecost, double, yes, right? Yes to that. So don't be a grumbler. Be a person of thankfulness. Know your spiritual gifts. And here's my end. Ready? And the band can come up behind me. Here it is. The word of God increased. We're not ashamed to talk about a growing church. Bigger is not more spiritual, but bigger is not shallower either. Because in the book of Acts, time again, time again, time again, it perpetually talks about the church growing. And so here's what I want to give you right now. It says that in Acts 6, after the worst family fight, when they resolved it, that a whole group of people that didn't like the church became church members. And this happened profoundly. So all I want to say is it's Christmas, right? And two studies have just come out, and it's really interesting. Two studies. I don't have the exact stats, but here they are. It's like 75 or 80%. 70 or 80% of people who've become Christians, who are invited to church, are still invited by a friend or family member. Right across North America. We think sometimes in our culture that the invitation thing is over. It's not. So I just, I want to say... It's natural for a church to grow. It's natural for God to keep doing his thing. It's natural for people to become Christians. And so I want to say, it's Christmas. Over, uh, next week, I start a brand new series on the Holy Spirit and the Christmas story. And I, I'm just going to say this. Everyone, go out and invite people to church. Because the Word of God is going to keep expanding rapidly. And we've been saying this for a while. God's presence is uniquely here. If you bring someone into community where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is present. He's present in worship. He's present when the word of God. Bring people to Jesus over the next three weeks and watch Jesus save even the most hard-hearted people. Think about the person in your life. You say they will never become a Christian. Go invite them first. Because this is what we see in Acts. And so we've got an opportunity to partner with the Spirit in the Christmas season, not just because it's nice and we have, no, no, bring them to environments where they will encounter Jesus. And if it's true that 70 to 80% of people come to church because they're still personally invited and we've got 2,600 people in our church, we can invite thousands of people to church in the next three weeks. So I want to challenge you, invite people to the presence of Jesus. Could we do that together? Anyone, please, to do that together. Good. Okay, let's stand together and let's pray and then we're going to respond. Lord, thanks so much that as a church, you've sovereignly just done stuff here we never expected. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us the book of Acts to teach us not only what happened, but also to see what can continue to happen. And so our prayer right now, Lord, is you just work this out. We pray thankfulness would grow across our church. We pray grumbling would be broken. We pray people would know their gifts and keep using them. And we pray, Lord, that the word of God would spread very strongly in the next three weeks. So, Lord, hear our prayer, and we pray you'd bless us and keep us. And, Lord, we, in this service and up north, we pray for all the people about to be baptized in the next service. Lord, would you guard their faith and use them and use them powerfully. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said... Amen. Let's sing to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. 
To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.